Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for ASHP's Practice Journey podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experience has shaped who and where they are today. My name is Lindsay Christensen, clinical pharmacist at UC Health Poudre Valley Hospital an advisory group member for ASHP's New Practitioners Forum Clinical Practice Advisory Group, and I will be your host today. With me today is Dr. Pete Johnson, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy, Adjunct Professor of Pediatrics at University of Oklahoma College of Medicine, PGY2 Pediatric Residency Program Director, Director of Clinical and Translational Science Fellowship in Pediatric Pharmacotherapy, and Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in Pediatric Intensive Care at Children's Hospital at OU Medical Center. Dr. Johnson is also a Senior Associate Editor for the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy and was Guest Editor for AJHP's 2019 Special Issue on Pediatrics. He has served as an Editorial Board Member for AJHP from 2009 to 2011, the Journal of Pediatric Pharmacology and Therapeutics from 2018 to 2019, and the Journal of Pediatric Intensive Care from 2018 until the present. Thanks for joining us today, Pete. Let's start talking about today's topic, Manuscript Mysteries, Unlocking Unanswered Questions from an Editor's Perspective. So can you tell me a little about yourself and how you became an editor? Sure, thanks for having me today. I have always had a passion for writing and using that as a creative outlet to produce things to help other people kind of explore solutions to problems, even going back to when I was in grade school. Um, And then uh, for a while in pharmacy, um, didn't get a chance to necessarily do that until my residency program with participation in medical writing. Uh, So with original research with my PGY 1 and 2 project and then other opportunities that I had. So ever since my um, completing my residency programs, I've always sought out opportunities to do that. So that passion for writing and creating things has has kind of always been there. And in terms of how I became an editor, I like to write and have published, um, but I've also been involved, significantly involved in peer review. And so I did get some uh, opportunities with AJHP just because I would kind of created my name for myself in terms of peer review, but also publishing with with the journal. That's great. Thank you. In what ways does serving as an editor challenge you and add value to your clinical practice? Great, great question. So I think I also see it as an opportunity to help create uh, stories or solutions to problems. So in this case, I'm not the actual one uh, writing the article or even necessarily uh, providing that peer review, but just sort of orchestrating that. So uh, helping find the best people to critically evaluate a particular article so that the creative solution to patient care problems, pharmacy practice problems are really there so that the end product is not just some bunch of jargon on uh, electronic media, but it's something that could be actionable at the patient's bedside. So that's kind of why, or what excites me about the editing uh, process is helping in that other way to, to create the end product. Yeah, that's, that's great. Let's talk a little more about 
like becoming an editor. So do you need a certain number of publications to become an editor? I would say uh, no, you don't necessarily need an, a, a set number. I think definitely have an experience in publishing, um, whether that's probably different types of articles, original research, review articles, case reports, having that experience doing it yourself. And then I think other kind of requirements, not necessarily publication, is that consistent peer review process is really the things that make good training for being an an editor. What's the difference in responsibilities between the different types of editors? Well, each journal has a little bit different editorial structure. So we'll take AJHP, for example. So they have um, Dr. Kobal as the, the main editor, and then Working underneath him is Dr. Miriam um, Hassel, and they have underneath them uh, several different editorial teams. So I'm on one of the teams, and so I'm a senior associate editor, so that means I have two associate editors working underneath me. And we have about four to five different teams. And so when they get, when AJHP gets an article, they distribute those to different teams. And so we are then uh, responsible for soliciting peer review. And then once we get the peer review back as an editorial team, we discuss that within the the, the senior AJHP editors uh, to kind of make the decision on that, that manuscript. Now, not in a role of an editor, but each journal also has usually an, an advisory board. So as you mentioned, I did serve on the advisory board And those advisory board members uh, may have some responsibilities with how many peer-reviewed publications they have to review, and sometimes they're brought on for specific types of expertise, but they're not necessarily an editor. They give feedback from the journal from more of a global perspective. Um, And so that's another kind of extra layer of quality assurance for the success of the journal. It's interesting to hear how it works on the backside. Are you invited or do you apply for the position? I would say uh, typically invited. So how I have ended up in this role is a little bit work that I've done, but more serendipitousness, basically. I um, had reviewed and published in AJHP and my name was recommended. So sometimes it's who you know professionally by uh, someone that is kind of a longstanding member of AJ, or ASHP, um, but was recommended to be a guest editor on the pediatric special issue. And so they saw my work there. And so then I got asked to serve in the, my current capacity as a senior associate editor. So it was definitely an invited position, but I guess this, this is a lesson that I've learned many times. Sometimes how you get to where you are or where your career goes is often, is often through connections that you have professionally. And so I think the value of networking is, um, is definitely significant. And I can definitely um, attest to that with my, my current role. It's definitely something good to think about as a new practitioner moving forward, the continued need for networking. Yes. If a new practitioner has an interest in becoming an editor someday, what advice would you provide them? I've probably said this ad nauseum, but Participating in publishing, um, I think, is a really good, uh, useful thing. Also, participating in peer review for journals and or abstract reviews with with organizations like ASHP is another layer of sort of editing or evaluating things. 
Another thing that I found was helpful was serving on the advisory board, seeing that side of things. Again, that's not an editor role, but you do get to interact with some of the editors. And I think it was a helpful thing for me to have the confidence that I could participate in this type of editor type type role. So that's that's something that um, if you get those opportunities, uh, definitely, definitely take them. Thanks for all that information. Let's move on to talking about a little more about actual writing. So there are many types of publications for which manuscripts could be formatted. Do you have any advice on delineating a specific format? Yeah, definitely. There are all sorts of different type of articles that you could write. So letters to the editor, case reports, review articles, and then uh, certainly original uh, research manuscripts. So a few key tidbits that I would suggest is I usually try to think of the end product. So in this case, case reports. So I would, you know, focus on actually writing the case report, but as I'm doing it, thinking of the journal that would fit that particular manuscript. And the reason why I think identifying a journal in the midst of actually doing it or as you're beginning a project is so important is that the journal requirements are so significantly different amongst different journals. And so, for example, some, if you're interested in doing, let's say, a a review article and you're wanting to review the literature on X topic, well, some journals only take systematic reviews or even meta-analyses that follow the Prisma format. Well, some review articles that you might work on don't really fit that framework. Um, it might be broader. It might cover several different medications or medication classes, et cetera. And so I think thinking of the journal that you're wanting to submit to is important from that standpoint. So I would definitely say, like, as you're doing it, just to reiterate, looking at the author guidelines for that journal to see what fits. Another example I can think of that's becoming more common is a number of journals have gotten rid of case reports. They might accept a case report, but in the context of a letter to the editor. So not an actual full-length body case report. Now, AJHP still does. I'll have to put in a plug for that. But many of them may only accept case reports. So I think identifying that as you're going um, is really important because if you develop a full-length case report manuscript and you have to switch it to, let's say, a four to 500-word letter to the editor, that's going to, you're going to kind of shoot yourself in the foot. Um, And so I think looking at those author guidelines, looking at the end result and kind of um, identifying what might be the best fit is, is really important. Okay, that's helpful. Is there anything that, as an editor, stands out in a negative way when reviewing submissions? In other words, is there anything specific we should be sure not to do when preparing to submit a manuscript for consideration? Yeah, that's a really good question. One of the biggest things that I would say is you might have done the best study or written the best review article, but if the end result, your take-home message, does not fit the journal that you submit to, then it doesn't make any sense. So I'll give you an, uh, an example of my own experience because part of how I've learned is doing things wrong and learning from feedback that I've gotten. So uh, my colleagues and I did this study that was assessing a certain withdrawal scale. And I'm a pediatric critical care person, but 
uh, we were evaluating the scale. We weren't evaluating outcomes. We were trying to figure out if it was the best scale to fit withdrawal in this uh, specific pediatric population. Well, when we submitted it, we had a certain take to it or a certain slant to it. And we had submitted it to a nursing journal and it didn't really align with the, the, the take home message that we had for the article did not really align with that particular journal. And so when we submitted it, it didn't even make it past the initial uh, vetting of the journal. It didn't make it out to peer review stage. I'm biased. I think it was a good article. It was eventually published, but the big lesson that I took away there is that you really have to think, does the manuscript fit the, the journal that you're, you're going for? So sometimes that might mean in an article like ours, we had to change the message or the takeaway message to fit with the, with the journal. We didn't have to change the outcomes. We just had to sort of mold it into fitting with a better take-home message. So we ended up submitting that particular article to a pharmacy journal. And our point was that if we don't know how to assess withdrawal, we're not really going to know how to treat it. So we, we made that connect a little bit more. So that's one uh, major thing that I would say. Another thing that I would say is, and I know I've mentioned it before, but is following the author guidelines. So to a T, I mean, some of them have like AJHP as a checklist. And so as a new writer, I would definitely go through that, the, the checklist that these journals have to make sure that it fits all the specific criteria that they want in it. I wish there was a universal checklist or a universal author guidelines, but the reality is that they're not. And even within the pharmacy community, um, with all the different size journals that are out there, they all have drastically different requirements. So another example, because this is how my mind thinks, is uh, one time uh, we were working on a review article. It was a systematic review and it was to a critical care journal. Well, when we read it, we understood that the word count limit was 3,000 words. Well, uh, we submitted it and it didn't pass the internal review process because little did we know, and it was in the fine print um, and the author guidelines, that that 3,000 words included the abstract. Well, there was no way that we could cut out any more words without you know, taking out uh, phrases that would actually help the manuscript make sense. So we ultimately had to go to a different journal. And so another take-home message is that those author guidelines, the checklist, it might be the best thing ever, but if it doesn't fit all those criteria then that the journal sets forth, then you're going to have to, you're not going to be successful with, with publishing at least in uh, the journal that you've selected uh, the first go around. So those are the two biggest things that stand out. Certainly grammatical errors and spelling errors don't help when you might have problems, but those are two things that really jump out to me. It sounds like really knowing where you want to publish before you start and what requirements are will really help you in the long run. Or at least during the process, early on. You know, you might not know at the beginning, like if you're analyzing data, but at least thinking about options while you're doing it or at the beginning, I think is helpful. And it's easier to have options and then get rid of those options in terms of journals, then, then you're right, then kind of doing it at, 
at the end. Okay, thank you. So what are some common errors made with an initial manuscript submission? As I mentioned, author guidelines is one. One in particular, an issue with author guidelines that it might be selected to to be sent out for peer review, but it's a common mistake, is references. Every journal has drastically different requirements for references. And certainly there are reference managers out there, but some of those reference managers don't have the certain uh, requirements in them for some newer journals. So I would always consult the author guidelines because the reference citations are so drastically different. So some journals, for example, they're not superscripts, they want the references in brackets. Um, And then the actual citations, they might want you to have the DOI number, not just the actual citation itself. And so even though you would think that that's such a minor issue, you're just happy to get words on the paper and get through the whole thing. That's something that is an error that, if it's not addressed, may not sit well with a, with a reviewer. Because you might get selected to, your article might get selected to be reviewed by a very experienced reviewer for the journal, and they may like the article, but when they get to the references and they see how they're referenced and they know that they don't follow the criteria of the journal, then even subconsciously, they may not be very uh, positive in their review. And so that's just one thing that comes to mind. Another one that I would say is making sure, no matter the type of article that you're working on, to have some sort of general purpose statements in your your background. And for original research manuscript, that, that purpose statement makes sense. But for review articles and case reports, you definitely need to have something in there just to kind of tease the reader as they go into the next section. And certainly for original research manuscripts, um, whether that's a practice-based quality improvement project or some sort of interventional study, they need to have clear objectives. And so making sure you spell those out. And then one last thing that I tell my trainees, this is kind of like blood in the water for reviewers is, and definitely for editors too, is making sure your abstract matches your paper. So oftentimes, I I do this myself, and I recommend this to trainees, that they work on the abstract last. And that's great. But sometimes we get so excited on thinking from the author side of things uh, about finishing the manuscripts that in hindsight, it doesn't actually match the wording that's in the abstract. And the first thing that a lot of reviewers see is the abstract. Some reviewers look at the abstract before they go into the paper just to make sure they know what they're supposed to get out of it. Some, again, they might go through the manuscript and they go back to the abstract. But regardless, if there's discongruency, that's definitely a significant issue that I've seen with initial manuscript submissions. Okay, that's all really helpful advice. Thank you. So what's your opinion on sending an author query to a journal to determine if an article would be appropriate for that specific journal? Yeah. Uh, So an author query is, I think, definitely a a good idea, especially if it's something that is maybe kind of controversial or a little bit cutting edge, or maybe you're just trying to figure out, like, does my take-home message of of my article that I'm working on 
does it really match the interest of the readership for that journal? And so I think submitting a query to the editors is definitely a good idea. It's it's definitely not a threatening experience. I mean, they're not going to be upset by saying yes or no. They may always have a stipulation about they can't say anything for sure, whether it would be accepted for peer or to be sent out for peer review or not without seeing the final project. But at least you could get some initial information. So some journals have it set up where that you can fill out an author query online. Other journals, you may, they may just provide the editor's contact information or the, the journal's contact information. And so certainly I think just emailing them would be a start. Even if people, you know, wanted to, if a journal provided the senior editors, um, that might be another kind of capacity as well to just contact them and see what fits. In my mind, from some of my own experiences, it was really helpful because some of the journals were, you know, definitely said, no, this wouldn't really be a good fit. And I didn't waste time trying to make sure the article followed all the author guidelines or went through the steps, it really helped be as time efficient as possible. So I think that that's really a, a great idea to consider. If they only provide like an email instead of a form, what are some key things you should include in the communication? Sure. I think a description of um, obviously what it is, what article, whether it's a review article, uh, original manuscript, I think your main objective, and then maybe some key findings. Um, so if it's a case report, you could describe maybe it's a novel adverse event that's not been published before, or if it's original research manuscript, what your main findings were. You definitely don't have to include the abstract, and in fact, they, they may not want to see that. But I think just a few key sentences um, about the nature of the project what, their, what your objective was, and then what you found, I think are, are super helpful. Okay, thank you. So we've submitted our article. Could you provide us an editor's perspective on the manuscript review process and timeline? Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, each journal is a little bit different. Let's take an, an example of a more robust journal like AJHP. So it goes to the editorial staff, and they do initial screening of the articles. And so some articles might not even make it to those different editor teams just because it might not fit for a variety of reasons for the scope of the readership, etc. But let's say that it is passes that initial screening. They follow the author guidelines. They weren't like me and had a manuscript that had too many words and wasn't going to be sent out for peer review. But Basically, in that case, the editors then would be in charge of finding peer reviewers. So what, what I do from an editor's perspective is I look at the scope of the article. So I'm a pediatrics person, but the reality is that I don't, we, I'm not in charge of overseeing just pediatric papers. And so sometimes, you know, I'll have to read the article myself, the abstract, and figure out, okay, what, what's the best fit for in terms of reviewer that would provide the best review. So, you know, if it's diabetes, again, that's a little bit outside my wheelhouse being a peds critical care person, but finding through the journal system, good reviewers for diabetes or endocrine topics. And then, you know, from there, there also might be a need if your project is heavy and 
qualitative research or heavy in biased statistics to get an additional biostatistician or someone that's experienced in qualitative methodology for research to also review. So they wouldn't be responsible for reviewing the content, but more for the analysis side of things. And so what happens from there is that, you know, it might take us several times to find reviewers. So sometimes if you notice that there's, there's a delay in like, I haven't heard anything from the journal. Well, part of the problem might be that we might have problems trying to find the best reviewers. And so at AJHP, we like to have at least three reviewers. Sometimes we might like to have additional ones. Like I said, if it's heavy in biostats or qualitative research, some journals also have as many as six. I'm familiar with one particular journal in the pharmacy realm, I'm not going to name names, that likes to have lots of reviewers. And so the reason why that becomes important is that that can further delay when you receive the peer-reviewed feedback. So we send those um, solicitations for peer review, and then generally reviewers are given a period of weeks to review an article, but they may ask for extensions. So that's just kind of a part of that, that process. But as I like to call it, the gestational age of an article going to, to be completed, that gestational age can take place from anywhere at this point from a few weeks up until the, the longest I've had personally is about six months, which is a little bit ridiculous and definitely not something that you would see with AJHP. But then when the comments come back, it goes to the editor team. So like the associate editor shares their feedback that they've gotten, they share their, their recommendation, and then we discuss it with a, the senior associate editors with, in this case, AJHP. And then pretty soon after that, you would get notification on the decision of the article. That's kind of a long process, but my key take-home notes is that every journal is a little bit different. They have different number of reviewers required. And the more reviewers that are required, the longer it's probably going to take to get it back to you. Great. That's very interesting. Thank you. What is a good way to format our responses to reviewer suggestions that would facilitate an efficient review and quick turnaround for revisions? So I think addressing them line by line. So what I would recommend is when you get the reviewer comments, I just copy them. Well, first thing I do is uh, look at them and don't look at them because you might be upset, might say some expletives, you know, drink whatever makes you happy. That's harder beverages or Coke or coffee, whatever, um, but come back to it because you might have a different perspective where I'll, you know, take things personally sometimes. But anyway, I would take all the comments, put them in a document and address them word line by line. So I'd also pay attention specifically to what the editor says. In some cases, the editors may say they want you to sp pay specific attention to this reviewer's comment or not. Sometimes they don't say that, and if they don't give you specific guidance, then you basically address everything. But what I do is either um, some journals will request you do track changes, or what I do is when I make changes in the revised manuscript is highlight it in yellow. That's my kind of personal preference. I love to hate track changes. I like to highlight it and then spell it out in my, my response to the reviewer. So I'm, I try to revise it as I go, line by line. That doesn't always work, but that's kind of my general approach. What I would also recommend is try to be as diplomatic and politically correct as you can. 
a reviewer might say something that's really um, strong and they may have missed something. And so use this as an opportunity to maybe clarify things that maybe weren't as clear as they could be during your initial submission. Also, uh, you don't have to accept all the reviewers' comments. This is something that I have to kind of teach my trainees, that just because a reviewer says you have to do something, that does not have to be the case. And so I would recommend discussing it with your team. If you have a group of people that you worked on, bounce that idea off of them. But typically, you know, it's the, it's the corresponding author that's doing a lot of these changes. But bounce that off of them because if you're working with people that are more experienced, they may um, be able to weigh in and say, you know, this reviewer has a really good comment, but that was, that's really another study or that's really another review article that really doesn't fit with what we did here. Or I just reviewed 7 million patient care records. I can't logistically review 3 million more. So those type of things, I think, are ways that I would approach it. Just keep in mind, address line by line, and you don't have to accept everything. And last thing, taking a break when you initially get those comments and doing whatever uh, makes you as much at peace as possible. That's good advice. Thank you. What advice do you have related to determining authorship credit and author order? Yeah, this one can be a little bit dicey, especially if uh, some of the people that you're working with um, have maybe academic appointments or are heavily involved in research because the author order can impact um, promotion. It can also impact the ability to obtain extra mill funding. So author order can be a very dicey thing. What I would recommend is this should be decided at the very beginning no matter if it's original research uh, manuscript or a case report, review article, decide this in the beginning. And so the general approach that, that I take on author order is that the first person is the corresponding author. They're usually the lead person. Um, and that the last author is usually the, the most senior, maybe in this case, a mentor uh, to the corresponding author, the first author. And then everybody in between has descending kind of level of activity. So basically, the second author would be the next most senior person or the next most person that's done the most work on the, the project or the manuscript. But these orders of different authors, like I said, can be a very big thing. So for example, in academia, usually to be promoted from, let's say, the associate to assistant or assistant to associate level, you have to be the primary author, the first author, so many times. Well, to get promoted to professor, you have to be the last author. And so that's why author order, when you're working with different people, can be so important. The same thing for with grants. Like if you're wanting to get extra mill grants, the more times you're either the first or the last author helps um, strategically for the. That's why author order can be a very bloody thing in people can have conflict over that. So my advice would be discuss that early and make sure everybody's okay with that. This is also a good reminder to say that anytime an article is submitted or even an abstract is submitted, make sure you have the approval by those authors because you don't want something to be submitted and maybe there is a fatal flaw when you had like the expert on whatever that fatal flaw was um, to address that. Because if that gets sent out for peer review, then that could, that person People could say, oh my gosh, 
Pete was on this, like they should have known or, you know, uh, and so I think this is a good reminder that with author order, making sure everybody is on board and approves it is a really important thing. Okay. Is there any specific guideline available to help facilitate this process? Yeah, there's a, a few different resources that are out there from APA, ICMGJE, uh, that kind of give responsibilities to the role of the authors and how authorship should be established. Certainly, some journals have policies about ghost authorship. So putting somebody's name just because it might help it get published, that's, that's definitely a no-no. And some of them may ask you when you submit it, to actually spell out what each author did. Did they analyze the data? Did they collect the data? And so I think some of those resources are helpful, but then also each journal, when you submit it, may have a different way of capturing what each author did to make sure that they actually participated. And there's usually language when you actually submit it that you check off as the corresponding author saying, everybody has read and approved it, And so obviously to be as ethical as we can, you have to only check that if that that is a true true case. There are still some journals that will send out after you submit it an email notification that authors have to sign off on, Um, but that's a little bit less common. That's a couple of different medical journals um, do that, but that's that's not quite as common as the corresponding author uh, sort of verifying that for everyone. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Pete Johnson for joining us today to discuss manuscript development. Join us here every Thursday. We will be talking with ASHP member contact matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.